Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Most people are familiar with Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream for America, but fewer have considered his comprehensive vision for what it would take to make that a reality. King understood that voting was not the only route to power and that economic justice was a necessary component of a more equal America. Today, on the day after the holiday commemorating his life, we take stock of how far we've come. And sadly, the answer is not far. The black-white wealth gap is as large as it was in the year that King was assassinated. So what went wrong? Why has our country remained so shockingly, corrosively unequal? That's coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Today we're talking about Martin Luther King Jr.'s still unfulfilled vision for economic justice in America. So to begin, even before we introduce our panel, let's listen to MLK from a 1967 speech he gave to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference entitled, Where Do We Go From Here? We must honestly face the fact that the movement must address itself to the question of restructuring the whole of American society. There are 40 million poor people here. One day we must ask the question, why are there 40 million poor people in America? And when you begin to ask that question, you're raising a question about the economic system, about a broader distribution of wealth. When you ask that question, you begin to question the capitalistic economy. And I'm simply saying that more and more, We've got to begin to ask questions about the whole society. We are called upon to help the discouraged beggars in life's marketplace. But one day we must come to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. It means that questions must be raised. You see, my friends, when you deal with this, you begin to ask the question, who owns the oil? You begin to ask the question, who owns the iron ore? You begin to ask the question, why is it that people have to pay water bills in a world that's two-thirds water? That was a 1967 speech by Martin Luther King Jr. here to talk with us about his vision for economic justice. We're joined by Michael Honey. Uh, He's an author and a professor of labor and American history at the University of Washington, Tacoma. He's the author of To the Promised Land, Martin Luther King and the Fight for Economic Justice. His latest book is about the organizer and theoretician of the civil rights movement, James Lawson. It's revolutionary, revolutionary nonviolence, organizing for freedom. Welcome, Michael. Uh, we'll get him online. Sorry, I, 
Oh. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Great. Thanks for joining us. We're also joined by Dorian Warren, co-president of Community Change, a national organization that builds power from the ground up. Also, probably worth mentioning for this, uh, has a PhD in political science from Yale. Uh, welcome, Dorian. Thanks for having me, Alexis. Pleasure to join you and Professor Honey. Yeah. Uh, Michael Honey, talk to me a little bit about the context for this speech and kind of the arc of Dr. King's involvement in this kind of long freedom struggle. You know, it's 1967. There have been a lot of victories in the civil rights movement. So what does this speech show us? What does this speech show us about King's overall vision for economic justice? Well, I'd like to take us back for just a minute to his beginning as the social gospel minister uh, and his letter to Coretta King in 1952, where he talks about the fact that he's more socialist than capitalist in his views and writes to her, he'd like to see a warless world, a better distribution of wealth, and a brotherhood that transcends race or color. This is the gospel I will preach to the world. We tend to think of King as, uh, actually, as he described it, going through two phases, the first one for uh, civil rights and voting rights from the Montgomery bus boycott, 55, to the Voting Rights Act of 65. And the second phase, as King described it, was for a radical redistribution of wealth and economic justice. And King said, you know, we are we did have two phases. And before we can address these larger questions, we have to get some citizenship rights. And so he put his focus on that. But all along, he was uh, a, an economic radical. Uh, he wrote again to uh, Coretta King. Uh, capitalism has outlived its usefulness. It's brought about a system that takes necessities from the masses to give luxuries to the classes. Well, he was consistent, you know, throughout his life um, that one of his other great speeches, beside the one you played, is, of course, his indictment of the war in Vietnam in, on April 4th, 1967. But also people don't aren't most people don't know about his labor speeches uh, mm -hmm. and the book called uh, All Labor Has Dignity. And that book has gotten circulated around among the labor movement. And Sherrod Brown, the senator from Ohio, has given it to people in Congress. Uh, so I'll take us back one more time and then I'll let you ask questions or go on. Uh, he said to the AFL-CIO as early as 1961, the duality of interests of labor and Negroes makes any crisis which lacerates you a crisis from which we both bleed. Uh, prophetically, he says, a crisis confronts us both, whether it be the ultra right wing in the form of Birch societies or the alliance in which former President Eisenhower denounced between big military and big business or the coalition of Southern Democrats, Dixiecrats and Northern reactionaries. These menaces now threaten everything decent and fair in American life. So this is uh, mm -hmm. in 1961. He is telling us in the future, we're going to confront this terrible right wing coalition of big business. Over and over and over. Yeah. You know, uh, Dorian Warren, when we think about the changes in the American economy, you know, both what Dr. King was seeing in his moment in time, and then we see this, you know, persistent wealth gap and even a widening of the wealth gap since, say, roughly 1980. How do you see at a large scale what happened? Like, how did we end up not closing this gap at all 
from mm. this time back in the late 1960s? That's a really great question, Alexis. And I would say there's at least two things. And I'd start with um, an essay written by Bayard Rustin in October, I believe, of 1963. For those who don't know, Bayard Rustin was uh, worked very closely with Dr. King, was the organizer of the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, um, was also a mentee of A. Philip Randolph, the great Black labor leader that was also a mentor to Dr. King. And I believe was influential um, on Dr. King's thinking. And Rustin is reflecting on the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom that August of 63. And he writes that the civil rights movement alone cannot provide jobs for all. It cannot solve the problems raised by automation. And automation deprives more Negroes of jobs than any other single factor, mm -hmm. including prejudice. Um, and he goes on, he's thinking a lot about essentially what we now know as deindustrialization hmm. and the change, the radical change in, as you, as Dr. King called it in the clip you played of the capitalist economy. So I think the first thing that um, has happened really since the 60s and, and Dr. King and Bayard Rustin and A. Philip Randolph and many others were thinking about this, like what happens and who is the miner's canary? when especially big cities are hollowed out because of deindustrialization, it's black workers. And so that's the one thing that's happened. We've transitioned from an industrial economy to mostly a care and service economy. Um, but there is also this, you know, it's striking to me that Rustin was thinking about automation because yeah. we know in the Bay Area, there's a lot of talk the last decade or so about automation, about robots. They were thinking about this in the 60s mm -hmm. and the impact on not just black workers, but all poor and working class Americans. And that's why Dr. King was raising questions of political economy and, as he said, the capitalist economy. I think the second thing that's happened is, um, in some ways, the, the promise of the Poor People's Campaign um, died with the assassination of Dr. King. I think the the central insight there was the idea of organizing poor low income working class folks into a, around principles of solidarity being willing to take action to really raise the questions of political economy and put forth a vision to transform it and so we've we've over the last 4 or 5 decades it's i will say been a struggle although there's some bright spots recently with the revival of the labor movement with the movement for black lives with um, the women's march, there's, a, there's been a lot of people engaged, but not yet to the scale in which we need ordinary people taking action in the way that I think Dr. King thought about it with the launch of the Poor People's Campaign. Yeah. You know, Michael, honey, uh, since Dorian mentioned it, you know, this organizing with labor unions, I, I was thinking about, you know, growing up in the 1980s and the stories that would be told about Dr. King during that time. I don't think... I can remember a single time that labor unions were mentioned, even though, you know, last speech of his life, supporting sanitation workers in Memphis, which you cover in your book. Talk to me a little bit about how you think that part of King's legacy, his work with labor unions, was kind of pulled out of that history. Well, actually, you had to look pretty hard to find that, as you just mentioned. <laughs> when I was researching uh, going down Jericho Road, the Memphis strike, King's last campaign, I went to the uh, Martin Luther King Center in Atlanta, and I discovered in the Finding Aid uh, King's labor speeches. And that was not so long. I mean, that was around, I don't know, 2000 or so when I found that. Mm -hmm. And I was 
surprised, just like what you said, that what? Labor speeches. And there were dozens of them. And so I went back through all of those and I have copies of all of them. And what I realized is that almost kind of on the side, King was always going to unions, uh, national unions, 1199 Hospital Workers Union, AFSCME, um, ILWU, Longshore Workers Union, Packing House Workers Union. These were people that bailed them out in Montgomery and Birmingham during those campaigns. They put up the money. United Auto Workers put up $150,000 in bail money. And he was considered a kind of honorary member of a lot of these unions. And they were with him uh, right to the end there in the sanitation strike, supporting him yeah. and supporting the movement of workers. So there's a, a great history here. And the speeches uh, are really worth reading. And a lot of union people have picked them up and realized that, you know, King is a labor hero as well as a civil rights hero. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible that history locally here of ILWU basically providing a lot of the, you know, just both financial support, but also just like the people for a lot of civil rights actions uh, during the kind of middle of the of the 20th century. Uh, we're talking about Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision for economic justice and how it has gone unfulfilled with Michael Honey, author and professor of labor and American history at the University of Washington, Tacoma, author of multiple books on civil rights movement. Also joined by Dorian Warren, co-president of Community Change, a national organization that builds power from the ground up. We'd love to hear from you. What is the legacy of MLK when it comes to economic justice and what work do we still need to do to achieve that vision today? Numbers 866-733-6786. We'll be back with more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision for economic justice with Dorian Warren, co-president of Community Change, a national organization that builds power from the ground up. Michael Honey, author and professor of labor and American history at the University of Washington, Tacoma, author of To the Promised Land, Martin Luther King and the Fight for Economic Justice. His latest book is about James Lawson's called Revolutionary Nonviolence, Organizing for Freedom. We want to hear from you. Where do you see the most work needs to be done to achieve King's vision of economic and racial justice? The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Were you active in the civil rights movement at the time? And what do you think went wrong uh, on the path towards economic justice? The uh, social media stuff, 
Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. I want to add another uh, guest to our discussion here. Tanish Hollins is the co-founder of SF Black Wall Street and vice chair of the SF African American Reparations Advisory Committee, as well as the executive director of Californians for Safety and Justice. Welcome, Tanish. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So you've been working on issues of economic justice and reparations here in San Francisco. What do you think are distinctive issues here in the Bay Area relative to other places uh, in the country? I would just say the huge disparity um, in the household income for black Americans. Um, obviously, California is the world's one of the world's largest economies, seventh, I think, in the world, and specifically the Bay Area. Um, the wealth gap between uh, black folks and other folks is huge. Mm-hmm. Um and it can be seen, you know, in every city uh, in the state, but specifically in San Francisco, um, it, it's especially troubling. Yeah, so it concentrates. It's a, the, the problem at its most extreme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, the African-American Reparations Advisory Committee in, in San Francisco recently put out a draft proposal mm-hmm. that tried to kind of put some numbers to, like, what would um, a fair amount of reparations look like? What would an overall program incorporating uh, reparations look like for the city. Um, There's a lot to the plan. It's extremely detailed, really tries to meet the problems like at the scale that they they exist. And if people are interested, they can find a draft of the plan on the internet at sf.gov. Why don't you describe a little bit of that plan and sort of its kind of general outline? Well, the plan looks at uh, a couple of different areas uh, that we wanted to make recommendations. First, looks at the historic harms that black Americans have experienced in San Francisco. There's, um, you know, a lot of misconception, especially because uh, California, specifically San Francisco, being far west, is often left out of the conversation uh, around the impact of slavery, um, but not excluded. Um, The report also looks at um, legislation uh, and other ways that harm specifically to the black community occurred, Um, you know, that impacted things like our displacement, uh, redevelopment, uh, redlining, um, economic disadvantages, uh, education. So the work of the committee has been to look at a couple of different areas that includes uh, economics, um, health, uh, education, And, you know, looking at these areas and determining ways in which the city can repair harm and redress. And that's not limited to financial compensation. That also looks at um, distribution of land. It looks at um, access to programs. It looks like environmental justice, environmental justice, you know, many, many areas. So the the report is very comprehensive and looks at a lot of different areas. You know, a lot of my work's focused on Oakland and West Oakland specifically and kind of the mechanisms of discrimination, disempowerment. And I, you know, at least the conclusion I've come to in my own work is that some kind of reparative plan is necessary specifically for, for African-Americans. The, the difficult part of it is when you start to try to put numbers to it, which you guys have admirably, the numbers are really big, right? There's like a lump sum of like $5 million for every longtime black resident and 250 years, at least 250 years of income uh, augmentation to bring um, black people to the area median income. And how do you, I think the, the question for me is like, how do you build the political coalition, Tanish? How do you start thinking about that to support that vision, right? To support that longtime change um, in economic fortunes? It's a great question. 
I mean, I think the number that uh, appeared in the paper, the $5 million, is a lot of conversation about, well, when do we have that kind of money and how can we get it to folks and then how do you convince folks that it's necessary? This conversation that we're having today uh, about the vision of Dr. King in economic justice, I think, is really important because what he described um, as the way that we're going to achieve this is a radical distribution of power and wealth specifically to black folks. And so that is what has to happen. Um, If we are going to have real conversations about equity, um, if we are going to understand that uh, in order for all communities to be safe and in order for all communities to be equitable, that black Americans, uh, specifically those directly impacted by chattel slavery, um, have never had the investment of the government or any of the private systems to achieve economic stability, um, that acknowledgement has to happen. And in order for us to achieve a collective vision, we have to have a concentrated vision specifically for black Americans. Um, We can talk numbers. We can talk about where the the wealth is concentrated and where we have opportunities for redistribution. Um, And there will be some political conflict that comes around it. But at the end of the day, uh, the commitment has to be to bettering society and dealing with uh, the bedrock issues that we've never had the op- the opportunity to directly address. And that has to happen with a radical transfer of economic power and resources to black Americans. Yeah. You know, Dorian, um, when you look at the politics of this and you look at kind of that coalition that would be necessary, not just to push through a reparations plan uh, of any size, but to sort of maintain that over time, h- how do you see building that kind of coalition? I think it's partly, Alexis, right where Dr. King left off in terms of his and many others' vision for a poor people's campaign um, of organizing rooted in Black communities and among uh, poor and working class Black folks, but in solidarity with poor people around the country. It's essentially people power, that the only way to beat organized money is organized people. And so it will require... And Tanise just really pointed out the fact that, yes, there are political conflicts over this, and the ultimate outcome in terms of policy for redress is a question of power, of political power. And so I think we learned a lot, not just from Dr. King, but from the broader Black freedom movement in the 60s. There have been innovations since then around how you organize ordinary folks most directly affected to actually wield power, um, as Frederick Douglass said, right? Power concedes nothing without a demand. What is the demand and what is the power to get there? And I do think that's where Dr. King um, and Professor Honey has already mentioned his close relationship with labor. He was also a critic, but his close relationship with labor, as we know, that's where he was in 1968 in Memphis, supporting striking sanitation workers. Um, I right? If we were to imagine uh, if Dr. King had the the fortune to live a longer life, he would be showing up on picket lines routinely in terms of organizing of workers, but of course, uh, organizing poor people broadly in a broad, um, solidaristic way. So it requires the organizing of ordinary people to take action. Yes, nonviolent action. Yes, direct action, um, disruptive action to force the questions of distribution of the economy of the broader society. Michael Honey, author, professor of labor and American history at the University of Washington, Tacoma, I wanted to ask you, how did Dr. King treat reparations, you know, rhetorically or in the letters that you've gone through or in talking with labor leaders? Like, how, how did he handle that topic in, you know, the late 1960s? 
It's interesting when you come across transcripts of his speeches during the Poor People's Campaign down in Alabama and Mississippi, he was explaining this to the grassroots level, what we were just talking about, that there's never been really reparations for people who were impacted by slavery and segregation. And he talks about the money that's gone into uh, land to people when they opened up the West, mm -hmm. money that's gone into the military industrial complex, all the places the money goes, but it doesn't go into reviving, you know, people who have come through this horrific period of slavery uh, and uh, segregation. And he makes it pretty simple. Uh, he, he doesn't call it reparations necessarily, but he says that there has to be a redistribution of power and wealth. And with that, there has to be dedicated government programs to abolish pro uh, poverty. And interestingly, he says, you know, poverty in the context of the United States is an anachronism. There's no reason for people in the wealthiest country in the world to be poor. The resources are there, it's how they're distributed. And he uses this as kind of his rationale for the Poor People's Campaign, that by changing the government priorities, you can change this condition. And it's the same today. Yeah. I want to uh, listen to another cut. Um, this is Martin Luther King Jr. talking about guaranteed income, perhaps one of the mechanisms for uh, affecting this kind of redistribution. It is precisely this collision of immoral power with powerless morality which constitutes the major crisis of our time. And we must develop progress, or rather the program, and I can't stay on this long, that will drive the nation to, to a guaranteed annual income. Now, early in the century, this proposal would have been greeted with ridicule and denunciation as destructive of initiative and responsibility. At that time, economic status was considered the measure of the individual's abilities and talents. And in the thinking of that day, the absence of worldly goods indicated a want of industrious habits and moral fiber. We've come a long way in our understanding of human motivation and of the blind operation of our economic system. Now we realize that dislocations in the market operation of our economy and the prevalence of discrimination thrust people into idleness and bind them in constant or frequent unemployment against their will. That was Martin Luther King Jr., of course, discussing guaranteed income. Um, Dorian Warren, you have co-founded the NRF co-chair of the Economic Security Project, which has been kind of one of the big forces driving forward the discussion on, you know, uh, what people sometimes call universal basic income or an income floor or guaranteed income. Um, can you talk to me about, like, do you remember when you first heard Dr. King talking about this kind of thing? And at that time in your life, were you like, oh, that's just, that, we could do that? Or like you were like, that's a crazy idea? Like, how, how did you uh, first see that? 
Yeah, it was actually in the late 90s. I came across his um, speech he gave in 1967 at Stanford University in your neck of the woods, Alexis, where he also talks a lot about um, a guaranteed annual income and makes the case for it. He actually cites the numerical amount by the uh, economist at the time, John Kenneth Galbraith. And I was so struck because in the late 90s, we had just um, finished a very awful horrific policy debate that I, that those of us who care about poverty in this country lost, and that was welfare reform in 1996. So when I came across his thinking and quotes around guaranteed annual income, as he called it, I was struck and thought, that's, that's just way out there. That's really Dr. King dreaming. And here we are. And here we are in 2023. And I have to mention my colleague um, and, and co-founder, Natalie Foster, who wrote a great piece yesterday in The New Republic, talking about the 100 guaranteed income pilots in places around the country in the last five years. That is um, the expression, frankly, of where Dr. King's thinking and theorizing was at the time in campaigning. Um, and it's especially, uh, there's a, a project actually in Atlanta um, and rooted in the same ward where Ebenezer Baptist Church is. And so there's, that's a reason for optimism and hope around how far we've come from the late 60s. And I think as more and more people experience um, the idea of guaranteed income, not just in theory, but in fact, in these pilots, you might also include, and Natalie talks about this, um, the six-month experiment around the expanded child tax credit in 2021, in which parents of children essentially got a guaranteed income for children uh, for mm -hmm. the first time in this country, which resulted in the lowest, let me say this super clearly, resulted in six months in the lowest child poverty rates ever in this country's history, especially for Black, mm -hmm. Indigenous, uh, and, and Latino children. So um, obviously that was a temporary measure and we have to continue the fight to get it reenacted. But I'm just struck by how in the last five years, um, this idea has gone from the margins to the mainstream. And the, I think if Dr. King were alive now, he would tell us to keep organizing. Last thing I'll just say on this, it's not lost on me that the effort around a guaranteed income in the 60s was really led by poor Black women who were on welfare, the National Welfare Rights Organization, who mm -hmm. pushed, in fact, uh, Dr. King on this idea. It's not like he came up with it all by himself, but he was really being pushed by other parts of the movement. I'm thinking of Johnny Tillman and National Welfare Rights Organization in particular, um, who really, really was advocating and organizing around this idea, which Dr. King and, and, and people choose to ignore this aspect of his thinking and strategy in the latter parts of his life. He was there on this idea, which in some ways was prophetic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you think about expansions to Social Security and stuff that occurred during war on poverty. It's not like there was it's not like we this is so far outside of like how the how, how we see taking care of vulnerable people in our society. Um, we got a, uh, a caller, Noah, in Richmond. Let's bring him on to the show. Noah, welcome. Hello, thank you for taking my call. I was just uh, like to make a comment about the way that Dr. King saw that uh, the you know things like racism and patriarchy and hatred for the poor are tools to maintain power, and he knew that we had to confront these discriminatory influences and dismantle them head on and individually. Um, but his whole movement was also structured around understanding that none of these things could be seen in a vacuum; that every individual person has to bring their full self. 
to the world every day, and that until we can respect that whole person, progress is impossible. Um, and so we've seen the kind of shifting narrative over time as people in power change the targeted group based on who is politically acceptable to target, right? After desegregation in the 60s, certainly anti-black racism persists to, the, to this day, but then you got a lot of narrative focusing on you know, anti-Mexican or anti-Latino uh, racism, saying that these poor workers are coming here to take our jobs, when these workers have far more in common with you know, working-class people in the United States than with the bosses that are using these two groups to play off each other and get one group to accept poorer working conditions than the other. Um, this is also, you can see this today in the way that Starbucks uh, is attacking its union organizing by providing trans health care to its workers that are non-union, but refusing to put this in the union contract mm -hmm. by exploiting these divisions that are politically hot topics. This is how business owners and the investor class prevents us from achieving economic equality. And that is why Dr. King explicitly labeled himself as a socialist. Thank you. Hey, Noah and Richmond, thank you so much for that perspective. And you know, got to throw in one more local labor note here, right? I mean, ILWU, again, you know, the Longshore Workers, used to be a large uh, uh, union in the city and the Bay Area as a whole. Also, you know, integrated early in 1934 for exactly these kind of reasons and pushed a bunch of different um, other maritime unions to, to do the same thing exactly for that reason so that they can sort of be divided by, by employers. We're talking about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision for economic justice. We're joined by Dorian Warren, co-president of Community Change, a national organization that builds power for working class and poor people. Tanish Hollins, co-founder of SF Black Wall Street and vice chair of the SF African American Reparations Advisory Committee. And Michael Honey, an author and professor of labor and American history at the University of Washington, Tacoma, and author of To the Promised Land, Martin Luther King and the Fight for Economic Justice. You know, Michael just wants to tweets to say uh, the old trade unions were highly segregated. The sleeping car porters were black while the locomotive engineers were white. Men who wanted to become, say, an electrician had to be sponsored by existing members while CIO unions like the UAW took everyone. Good reminder of that history. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about economic justice, the vision of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And we're joined by Tanish Hollins, who is the vice chair of the SF African American Reparations Advisory Committee, Dorian Warren, co-president of Community Change, as well as co-chair of the Economic Security Project, and Michael Honey, author and professor of labor and American history at the University of Washington, Tacoma. You know, Tanisha, I wanted to uh, get your thoughts on, you know, when in your work in the city, 
when you look at something like universal basic income, do you how, how do you see it? Like, do you see that as something that um, would have a reparative effect? And so, therefore, if it was universal for all, that would be good. Or do you think it must be targeted uh, more specifically? I think it can be both reparative and preventative, um, you know, for 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 all. I mean, San Francisco has a few small pilot projects around universal basic income that have already shown um, to have really, really positive uh, benefits for for families and individuals, but for society as a whole. You know, this conversation about UBI also makes me think about what we all experienced during the pandemic and how important it was to have um, a baseline of resources, whether they came in the form of, of stimulus um, or, or other opportunities for folks to receive economic support right away. Um, I think most folks who may have never had that experience saw the benefit um, of having uh, a baseline income or having resources at their disposal without having to ask for it. So I think that UBI for sure um, shows a benefit. But to your question about whether or not it should be targeted to black folks, one thing that I just want to make sure that we're clear on is while universal basic income is a huge advantage and opportunity, it is, it's not, um, it's not it's not reparations on its own. Right. Mm-hmm. There are lots of ways to redress and uh, repair harm. Uh, universal basic income for black Americans and specifically in San Francisco would be a start and an opportunity to build um, and to, to build and repair the harm and to prevent more harm from happening. Um, but it's just one example of ways that we can do it. And it benefits society overall uh, when all folks have an economic baseline. But if we're focusing specifically on those who are most disenfranchised, it lifts everyone up. Yeah. Um, Dorian, you know, one of our listeners, Marilee, writes in to say, have your guests followed or joined with the current Poor People's Campaign led by uh, Reverend William Barber. It's been growing for a number of years, and I think it's partially responsible for the election of Joe Biden and the results of the 2022 election. Also, are they aware of Ann Nelson's book, The Shadow Network, which details how the radical right wing has destroyed unions, captured the evangelical Christians to take stand against Christian beliefs, help fund Stop the Steal. Um, we need to support these uh, the, these authors who are showing how this is happening. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about the the Poor People's Campaign and how you see that, uh, you know, dovetailing with or, or expanding, extending uh, Dr. King's vision? Sure. And I, I should say um, I'm very familiar with the Poor People's Campaign and, in fact, um, attended the uh, the march last year read by uh, Reverend Barber and others uh, who are leading the, the modern version and the continuation of the Poor People's Campaign. And I would say... Um, that it's important, right? Because for two reasons. One is it's one thing to do political analysis and political education and organizing people around issues like poverty, inequality, racial injustice. What Dr. Br- what Dr. King brought and what the current Poor People's Campaign brings um, with this leadership is a moral framework for understanding the ills of our country and our society. And I think that's really important in terms of political discourse and political rhetoric and reclaiming, frankly, uh, a particular kind of Christian tradition, in this case, around um, the evils, uh, as Dr. King called them, of racism, of of capitalism, and of militarism. And so um, we need all hands on deck, and I love the work the Poor People's Campaign I also say that I think Dr. King understood that there was no magic bullet solution to all of the injustices, not just that 
poor and working class black folks faced for centuries, but of course, um, all low income people. And he was constantly trying to understand, theorize and campaign around what it would take, what it would take to focus on organizing black folk, but also to do that in solidarity with poor whites, with poor indigenous folks, with poor Latinos and poor Asians, with workers organized through their unions. And so um, guaranteed income, for instance, isn't a magic bullet, but he understand that we needed a range of, frankly, radical solutions to the problems, as we talked about earlier, of the broader economy and political economy that um, that especially Black folks were experiencing in the 60s with deindustrialization. Yeah. Michael, honey, let's talk about one of those other uh, radical ideas, and that was the jobs guarantee. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what what the vision for that was and, and how it might have played out? There's one place in one of his talks that is published. I can't remember which one it is, but King talks about the fact that there's so much work that needs to be done that isn't being done that could change the unemployment of poor people, the permanently unemployed so-called, that you know, the money exists, the people exist. And we can see this every day, things that need to be done, particularly, you know, like around the unhoused situation. There's lots of work that could be done paying people not, exor- you know, a huge amount of money, but something uh, to get them on their feet. And so he was a, a big advocate of just, just start paying people to do the things that need to be done. And there's plenty to be done. And in the long run, you'll save money by doing that. Let's bring in another caller, um, Lori in Davis. Welcome. Hi, um, I have a magic bullet for you. Uh, uh, I, I think the racism is just so built in right now uh, that it's it's hard to the economic injustice is is as has created a, it's going to be hard, but I have a thought which is in terms of reparations uh, to not distribute it across the board, but instead to offer all black youth or maybe just uh, uh, economically deprived youth. Uh, uh, a uh, college or a trade school, any kind of training scholarship. Uh, And I think this could change things radically in one generation because they would have more uh, economic uh, potential. And I think generally people would be supportive of this, maybe older uh, black folks who aren't getting the money are are going to be supportive of their youth. So I'd love to hear your opinion. Basically, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, yeah. uh, funding a, a, a tr- any kind of training scholarship yeah. guaranteed. Great, thank you, uh, Lori and Davis. You know, Tanisha, of course, the SF African American Reparations Advisory Committee did consider different alternatives for education, right? I mean, can you tell us a little bit about how you all kind of thought about that on the committee? Well, yeah, I mean, there's definitely been a focus on expanding the ways that we look at education and the type of investment that we want to see 
um, for black students. There's been a lot of failure, obviously, by the public education system to close the, edu- the educational achievement gap. But we do want to see a, a focus on uh, more pipelines into entrepreneurship, trades, um, different areas of tech um, and health, and really create sectors um, where our young people are getting investments in education, but also direct pipelines and access to opportunities. Uh, and that really is the goal, right, that, we're, that we are uh, making our investments count by making sure that our people have a direct path to build wealth, not just education for the sake of education, but an opportunity to actually build an economic baseline for themselves and for their families. Um, and so we've got to diversify. We also want to see education um, centered on um uh, an experience that creates safety for black students, uh, you know, is free of anti-black racism or uh, education and curriculum that is, um, you know, counter to what our culture needs for our, our folks to feel empowered and to step into um, into their futures. Yeah. You know, in our last movement here in the show, I, I do want to talk a little bit about the modern labor movement. Dorian, I want to start with you, someone who's, you know, really actively involved in organizing with it. How do you see it as, you know, different from the labor movement of old? And how do you see it as supporting the vision you've been working on of economic justice? Well, Alexis, that brings to mind, frankly, um, last year we marked the 10-year anniversary of the Fight for 15 in a Union, launched in 2012, um, in a moment when even President Obama, progressive economists, said that that number of 15 was too high, too much, too fast. It reminded me of Dr. King's searing indictment of gradualism. And thankfully, those low-wage workers, particularly black and brown, ignored the so-called experts and went out and organized and won billions of dollars for millions of workers. And they they recently, we just focused through um, the Service Employees International Union late last year on organizing service sector workers in the South, sort of a phase two of the fight for 15 in a union movement, which in many ways you might see as part of a broader poor people's campaign of organizing those most directly affected to take power, to demand better, both morally and tangibly and materially. And so um, that's where I see the labor movement going. And, you know, we've been in an upsurge of union organizing. The approval ratings of labor unions are at their highest levels in decades. Um, And so I think this is the moment. Mm. This is the moment for workers around the country to keep organizing across race and gender um, and putting their demands on corporations who have, frankly, through this pandemic, profited in enormous levels and and enormous scale. And so that this is the, the work I see of unions right now on the ground is continuing the long, inclusive history of uh, the labor movement. Of course, Dr. King, we have to say, was very much a critic of the exclusionary wings of the labor movement. But it's a different labor movement today. And I think we have many, many unions who are leading the way. Yeah. You know, Michael, honey, you spent a lot of time thinking about the intersection of the long freedom struggle and the labor movement. I mean, when you think about the lessons that still apply today, right? I mean, let's just say segregated unions, you know, those should be in the past, although, you know, I'm sure you can find examples of that even even to this very day. Um, so how, what lessons do you think kind of roll forward from this, you know, freedom struggle and labor organizing together? I think that the message that King delivered at 
the very end of his life, uh, his very last speech, now our struggle is for genuine equality, which means economic equality. We can all get more together than we can apart. This is the way we gain power. I think that more people in the union movement, labor movement have adopted this framework than when I was doing my research on all of this back in the 1980s, yeah, 80s and 90s. When I was recovering the history of the CIO in the South, when people didn't know that there were union <laughs> campaigns in the South, it, things have changed a lot, uh, partly based on the scholarship we have all done. And I think uh, union people, and as particularly those at the top of leadership, uh, have come to see a, a different framework than certainly when I was growing up in the 60s and the AFL-CIO supported the Vietnam War and you know endorsed all the wrong people for office many times. So I think that really has shifted. Yeah. A few more comments uh, coming in from our listeners. Jed writes in to say, U.S. capitalism in the 21st century needs an injection of socialism in the way that China 35, 40 years ago needed an injection of capitalism to ramp up their stagnant stagnant economy. Joe writes in, and uh, Tanisha, I'm going to throw this one uh, over to you. Perhaps the greatest example of capitalism working against the interest of the people is Exxon's suppression of their research into climate change. I have no doubt that were MLK alive today, he would be at the forefront of the environmental justice movement, as well as a champion for economic inequality. And you know, one of the things that your uh, advisory committee has worked on are the environmental cleanup and, and justice needs of the black community in San Francisco. I mean, specifically in Baby Hunters Point, but but around the city. Absolutely. And Baby Hunters Point is my home neighborhood. Um, so it's been a huge issue for decades. Um, and there is no way for us to achieve economic justice or social justice without looking at environmental justice, not just in San Francisco, but I think it's pretty standard across the country, especially in the south sides uh, of many of our major cities. There is a concentration of issues that are related to environmentalism um, that directly impact black folks and poor folks. And so it's important for us to prioritize that in our conversations around how we're going to achieve equity and how we we are going to achieve equality, um, you can't start off by having people live in the most toxic environments um, in the city and sometimes in the country um, without addressing that as a part of how we build health and safety and upward mobility. So it's critical here in San Francisco as an issue that uh, our committee, uh, but also community, you know, we've talked a lot about organizing. Uh, it's been the voices of, uh, of our people in the community that have kept this conversation alive. Um, you know, many of my elders, uh, Espinola Jackson, Anola uh, right. Maxwell, so many others who are in the forefront of this conversation around economic justice in San Francisco, um, environmental justice and direct impact that it's had on black health disparities um, has been important. So it's a huge part of our conversation and how we're being intentional about addressing it moving forward. Yeah. People are interested in some of that history, too. I highly recommend Espinola Jackson's Oral History where she talks about the history of the neighborhood, or, or take a look at uh, Eloise Westbrook, too. And you'll see people who've been fighting for many of these same things in Baby Hunter's Point for, you know, literally, you know, we're talking 70, 70 years ago. Um, last uh, comment from listener, Catherine writes in to say, the naysayers say this all happened generations ago. Why do we have to use taxpayer dollars now for this? Can you explain more about generational wealth and the benefits that brings people, perhaps describing where someone could have gotten today through real estate appreciation, inheritance, etc. Dorian, why don't you take this one on? This is basically a question about like, 
Why should wealth be redistributed in general, it seems like? Well, I think, uh, frankly, Alexis, Dr. King talked about this in the part of his uh, infamous now, 1963, I have a dream speech that everyone seems to ignore. And he has a long, pretty significant meditation uh, where he talks about, you know, people gathering to the at the Capitol to cash a check. Uh, he writes, you know, it's, or he spoke and said, it's obvious today that America has defaulted on the promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. And instead of honoring the sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check that has come back marked insufficient funds. And he concludes that section by saying, we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. And so I think he was actually, you can interpret that as being super clear on and, and before that parts I just um, shared with you, he goes on about the hundred years post-emancipation uh, mm-hmm. of which Black folks were exploited, of which there was no land given to Black people that was promised. And so I think you needed the, you need the historical context, which Dr. King provides in the I Have a Dream speech, to understand racial wealth distribution and the necessity for it. Um, and then I, I just to go back to the other caller too, Alexis, um, it made me think about uh, Derek Hamilton, the economist at the New School, his idea of baby bonds mm-hmm. as as one of several strategies and policies to really address this hundreds year old racial wealth gap. Yeah. Um, and and it's, it's one of the, I think there's some experiments happening now at the local and state level. It's one of the the best, I think, ideas we have seen in a generation around dealing with racial wealth um, maldistribution. Uh, Leslie writes in to say, where can we listen and read more Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speeches? Of course, there's YouTube, but Stanford has the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute. So Google that, Martin Luther King Jr. Stanford. We've been talking about Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision for economic justice with Dorian Warren, co-president of Community Change, Michael Honey, professor of labor and American history at the University of Washington, Tacoma, and Tanish Hollins, who's the vice chair of the SF African American Reparations Advisory Committee. Thank you all so much for your calls and comments. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? 
or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles. The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.